0: Welcome to the Business of Family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you will enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly Business of Family newsletter, go to businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. It's my pleasure to welcome back by popular demand Tiho Brakan. Tiho was one of the early participants on the podcast. And to date, still has one of the most downloaded episodes we've ever had. Tiho's last episode generated a huge amount of discussion and follow up questions to both he and I, and we promised that we would do another conversation. Tiho is a multifamily office investor, a global citizen, and some say the most interesting man in the world. We dive into today in deeper detail mezzanine finance in real estate deals that Tiho invests in and coordinates for his clients. We also unpack citizenship by investment, residency programs, investing cross borders, and a range of other things, including the state of the global markets and how family office investors are thinking about placing their capital in this crazy world today. I hope you enjoy the second conversation with Tiho Bracan. Tiho, fantastic to have you back. This has been a highly requested follow-up to your first episode. Thanks so much for making the time
1: to do this once again. Absolute pleasure, Mike. Thank you for inviting me and great to be here. Looking forward to it. So last time we got together, we talked about what you're seeing
0: in the world as a running a multifamily office, investing your own wealth, your own family's wealth, participating in opportunities around the world. And that was, I think, June last year. So, we were about seven or eight months ago. I'm curious what you've seen evolve from your perspective over the last six to eight months. What are families doing with their investments or not doing? How have you seen the world shift from being in the midst of the pandemic to
1: growing and evolving over the last few months? That's a fantastic question, Michael. Actually, a lot has happened In the last eight um, months, it feels like we've talked just yesterday, but if you actually look at the financial markets, if you look at uh, what's been going on around the world, and I'm talking about both monetary and physical policy, I guess governments together with central banks have gone into overdrive. So I was reading a KKR report the other day, and they were estimating that around the world, the stimulus that happened from, let's say, March to March has been in excess of $30 trillion. So that's with a T, that's not with a B, <laughs> and that's enormous. That, that is basically one and a half sizes of the US economy, the US economic GDP, and that's just spent in, in less than 12 months. Uh, we've never seen this before. Countries, for example, like Italy, which were in trouble already a decade ago, if you recall, I think people have amnesia today because of the euphoric market, so they don't recall any of the worries we've had 10 years ago. But Spain and Italy and countries such as those, they were in trouble 11, 10, 11 years ago, the way they were spending their deficits. Well, this year, Italy spent 35% of their GDP in one single year. So what I'm noticing is that there is, you know, the sentiment is very euphoric. When you throw this kind of money into the economy, sentiment of investors, whether they are, let's say sophisticated investors managing a large amount of money or whether they're uh, retail investors in public there is basically a euphoria or i would say a mania going out there so a lot of the investors that i've been talking about are looking at how to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible and that's been really the trend that i think will probably last for another x amount of months or x amount of quarters but usually this is a very very scary time to be considering long-term investments. Now, a handful of family offices that I've been talking to are aware of this, especially the ones that I either work with or cooperate with or co-invest with, and generally part of investment clubs and so forth. And what they're focusing on, actually, with that, all of that in mind, is trying to figure out how to protect themselves in case we, we have a downturn, a major valuation repricing and i'm not talking about a downturn in economic sense because what we are having here now is a disconnection between a complete disconnect between the economy and the asset prices you know i've studied recessions dating back to the 18th century and you know since 1870s in the united states there's recorded data by the federal reserve in in the cycles of the economy and so forth typically recessions used to happen every 6 to 7 years but in recent decades after World War II in particular, these cycles have been stretched by central banks and they, they are prolonged. So in essence, you're meant to get a uh, asset repricing. It's normal to see credit markets go under pressure and bankruptcies and default rates increase during recessions. But this time around, we've had one of the worst recessions ever recorded. I was looking at the Bank of England data, even during the British Empire. And dating back to the 1709, back then there was a South Sea bubble and a massive crash in the economy as well. And this recession was the worst for the UK since the 1700s. So it's incredible. But if you look at asset prices, if you look at real estate in places like London or in, in, you know, some parts of the United States or... In Singapore, potentially, or in, or in uh, Australia and so forth, you would think that we're having a, a huge amount of prosperity and it's all built on very strong fundamentals. And unfortunately, it isn't. So a lot of the family offices that I talk to who I will consider smart money, who I would consider in some ways always looking to mitigate risk, protect risk, anticipate risk is a big one as well. They're looking for uncorrelated assets and investment opportunities. And they're also focusing on defensive strategies, going as far up in the capital stack as possible. In other words, focusing on seniority and priority in senior debt or mezzanine debt. They're also looking at litigation financing, which is something that I've started to look at in in a large way as well. And they're generally looking for opportunities in, in spaces, even in e-commerce, where, for example, valuations can be quite high, but where risks can be mitigated, where, for example, majority of your customers are the government and different government institutions. And these, these institutions, or these customers, I should say, they're paying one or two years up front. So you have reoccurring revenue, and you are entering these companies at very low valuations. So I've, I've looked at deals like this as well. I think margin of safety is paramount for certain people because they're anticipating a potential downturn if they are smart, because we've seen throughout history how this tends to end. And I would say this time around, central banks are going to definitely make sure that they can prolong it as much as possible. So I don't know the timing aspect of it. And I also don't know how it will play out. Because as you see, normally, in, in, in normal downturns, valuation repricing happens where you hold cash. Cash gives you optionality. Cash gives you opportunities to, to be selective and, and, and buy distress from motivated sellers. But in today's world where cash is being printed, M1 and M2 money supply around the world is increasing. Well, not everywhere, but in the United States is a good example, and also in European Union, it's increasing at a very rapid speed. The question today is, is cash actually defensive or it will it get you into trouble? Is is cash going to be king, which is one famous saying, or is cash going to be trash which is the other famous saying so yeah it's, it's a very difficult environment mike i have to say and it's while it's easy to make money today and you know it, it seems everything seems to be working the question for very smart investors i think is to anticipate what's around the corner it's a great perspective i guess my follow up to that is
0: these contrarian investors family officers that you work with sitting on their hands at the moment or is there also a rush to participate because there is so much money supply, but they're looking for uncorrelated assets during this boom time? I mean, it, th- there's mania out there. Are they participating
1: or are they sitting back? Well, I, I definitely think investors are always looking uh, for a home for their cash. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I'm doing that. And, you know, I, I think I'm a little bit more contrarian than most people. I don't think it's. The, the word contrarian can sometimes be used in a wrong way as well. People assume that if there is a mania going out there and you, that means you're negative on the on the stock market and you're going to have to go and short it and you have to buy naked puts on it, or you're going to have to structure certain bets like credit default swaps or something fancy like that, that doesn't have to be. So in, in essence, you you a contrarian investor can be a, also a value investor or a relative value investor in, in essence. And what that means is that you ride a certain wave, let's say it's the stock market, until valuations become extreme for you and you understand that high valuations today entail future disappointing returns. The future expected returns will most likely disappoint investors at this point in time. And you don't go and bet against the stock market. These manias and these um, you know euphoric bull markets that go parabolic in some essence, they can last for a long time and you can actually lose your money. That's not a very wise way to invest. A better way to invest is to go and look for opportunities elsewhere, sidestepping that and saying, I've rode that bull market as far as I can tolerate the risk. And now I'm going to look for value or relative value elsewhere. In the financial markets, most of the investors always think about stocks, bonds, maybe gold and credit and all these kind of traditional investments like REITs. But for family offices, uh, most of the ones that I have been in contact with and work with, they don't really have those mandates that they have to stick to just one kind of liquid asset type or public markets and so forth. They have the opportunity to go everywhere and do anything. And that's wonderful. You have a, what they call uh, basically a, an open mandate. And you can invest in different regions of the world. You can invest into different capital stacks, whether it's equity or debt. You can look at long duration, in other words, buy and hold for a long time, or you can look at short duration, in essence, maybe lending. You could be looking at different currency denomination as well, because there is a potential to to invest from one country to another. And not only can you earn a very good yield or a very good capital appreciation, but you can also have a difference in currencies, either push your investment appreciation higher or lower, depending on whether you get that right. And then there is in essence, also co-investing, investing with the right people and, and having the right network of people that can produce the kind of opportunities that you're looking for. And you you have the trust in their track record, in their execution and skill set. So when I'm looking around the world right now, I'm basically, together with my clients, we're trying to figure out, instead of the question that everybody, I think, is asking, especially the retail community out there and the public, which tends to enter the market at the end of the move, And they're asking, how much money can I make by next Monday? When I'm sitting around the table with my family and uh, several clients that I manage their wealth, as well as other investors, whether they're from Malibu, whether they're from London or South Africa and so forth, the question that I'm asking them and the answer that they want to know as well is, how do we only lose 20% uh, and not 50% in the up, up and coming downturn? I don't hear anybody saying that. I don't hear people questioning that. So that's the contrarian aspect. In other words, we're anticipating or preparing for something and trying to mitigate their risk as much as we can by looking at uncorrelated assets or defensive assets, You know, moving up the priority and seniority in the capital stack and, and saying to ourselves, well, hopefully we can weather that storm better than others. Tiho, every time we chat, this is what I enjoy most, your global view
0: your vast experience across so many different asset classes, it's almost like you've lived multiple lives. And we won't get into that today because you know our first conversation that we recorded talked about some of your prior experience. But following up on on your last point there about the longevity of investments or the duration of which you're looking to invest, has that shifted at all? When families are looking to invest for the very long term, has any of this Frothiness in the markets or the money supply increase in the markets forced families to think about shorter term investments, or are they going the other way and actually taking a 20 or a 30 year view on some of their investment decisions? Do you have an insight onto that?
1: Yeah, I was just talking to, actually to a family office outside inside California actually, and we were talking about this exact topic and the way that they're executing this, this is a great example, is that they're doing a mixture of both. When it comes to the uncertainty that they're experiencing, that all of us are really experiencing right now, certain part of their portfolio, or let's say one part of their bar, it's like a barbell strategy. One part of their barbell strategy is towards shorter duration and higher priority or seniority. So they're looking at ground leases, they're looking at senior debt, they're looking at mezzanine debt. They're looking at that defensive nature and they're looking at durations of 12 to 36 months at most, usually it's 12 to 24 months. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it from what I'm seeing is that they're attempting to, at least in some countries, you can't do this in all of the countries, but they're attempting to borrow as much capital as possible. In other words, in a form of debt, that they, they, they are trying to, uh, fix it at the lowest rate possible. At with the longest duration they can, up to 30 years in some cases. And that they, you know, the strategy here is that you're hoping that eventually central banks will create so much inflation that they will inflate away. And this is their, this is what they're trying to accomplish in the first place. They're, they're going to inflate as much debt as possible. But the ironic thing about that is, even though the central bank is signaling this to investors, It's actually having a very negative outcome, in my opinion, and not a lot of people, if any, are thinking about this or talking about this. The central banks are clearly out there saying, we want to try to inflate the debt because austerity, defaults, bankruptcies, and haircuts will not work, and the society will probably be at each other's neck. They can't take it. So we're going to attempt to create or manufacture inflation. We're going to let inflation run above a certain limit, and investors ironically front running the central bank as they always do after they get their signals and now we're actually taking on as much debt as possible you know we already have too much debt what i'm trying to say and we have to inflate that debt away to potentially fix the uh, the problem but because there's been a signal from central banks that that's what they're going to do that's the path they're going to take now we're adding so much more debt if that makes sense which is going to put the system And I think the overall, the the current economic cycle or the real estate cycle and the stock market cycle into a serious level of risk. We've had some issues in 1998 with the Asian financial crisis, which basically almost triggered a recession in the Western world. There was an Asian financial crisis and Russian default. Alan Greenspan came out and cut interest rates and started adding money on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. But that was in a small way back then because interest rates were still very high. Eventually, we've had a tech crash and then Alan Greenspan, which was followed by Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, he cut the rates all the way down to 1%. And I remember famous investors like Marco Barry and Stanley Druckenmiller, the, the legends of the hedge fund world, let's say, stating that interest rates were extremely low relative to where they should be from the period of 2001, let's say, when the tech bubble popped all the way to 2004 as they started to slowly edge them back up. And that created malinvestment, that created excesses, and that eventually led to a subprime and a global credit bubble, which popped. And and, and as a a result, we had 2008 and 2009, which was the total meltdown of the banking system. Well, the debt levels were very high back then, but if you think that was high, today is just a completely another level. And not only that, but we've had now Interest rates. In some cases, it, it's called the zero policy, uh, zero interest rate policy, which basically has stood at almost at zero. The Central Bank of uh, United States attempted to get it above two, and then they came back down just recently. But we. So imagine how much malinvestment, how much excess investment, how much, how much zombie companies are out there right now, and, and how much capital is sloshing around trying to look for a home way up the risk curve in in other words you're usually investing at a certain asset that you are comfortable with and now you're going up the risk curve because you can't get the returns that you're comfortable with normally there is no more yield in in credit there is no more interest rates at the bank so you're forced to speculate and after 10 years of negative interest rates and zero interest rates i just wonder what's going to happen and the debt levels today are extremely high relative to where we were in 2008. So I think every single crisis that we've had, eventually it's triggered by more and more debt. And now central banks are telling us we're gonna attempt to inflate this debt away so people are taking on even more. So to come back to the point, I think family offices are playing this in in a barbell strategy way, at least the ones that I'm talking to, and that's the way that we're attempting to play it. On one side, we want to be as safe as possible, as senior as possible, have everybody else subordinated between us, so, behind us, so that in, in essence, we can protect our capital as much as possible. But in case inflation does happen, we also want to have some long-term duration of investments, which will benefit under inflation. And I don't necessarily just mean borrowing a huge amount of money and fixing it at a 30-year like a, like a, you know, a long-term t- 30-year mortgage or something like that, I think long-duration assets also is just as a hint that we can talk about eventually in the future is you can have investments like agricultural land, farmland, or even what we like is pastoral, pastoral and also poultry investments. So New Zealand lamb, Australian beef, and Australian chicken, it, it, I think is a great investment because it has both fundamental as well as inflationary protection. Fundamental signals here, you have three and a half billion people in front of Australian doorstep, basically the whole Asia Pacific attempting to slowly rise from very low levels of purchasing power, parity living standards. And they want to eat far more protein in their diet relative to you know, what they used to eat 20, 30 years ago. And their incomes are rising so you know, they can support that kind of a diet. They can, their living standards are increasing as Asia continues to boom. And Australia is at a perfect place to be supplying that. So, and on top of that, throughout history, whenever we had high rates of inflation, you didn't really see stocks. Of, obviously, you didn't see bonds and also real estate do very well. There's a connection that real estate will do really, really well when, if inflation happens. Well, that's true over the very long term, let's say a decade or so, or even longer. But what happens in the short term, if you study 1960s, the 1970s, in particular 68, 1970, when Nixon took the um, gold standard off and created the uh, floating mechanism of currencies that we have now, and also 1974 oil embargo and the double dip recession under Paul Walker in 1979 to 81. Uh, That was one of the worst recessions ever. If you look at that period, every time inflation spiked, real estate crashed, the famous crash in New York in 1974 with Real estate in New York was went down a lot. Same in London and so forth. You know, and also stock market suffered in 1974 as well, and around the 19 uh, late 1970s and 1980s. But what did well was agriculture and precious metals, uh, real assets essentially. So I think you have to take both of those in, into context, Mike. It's fascinating. I could listen to you talk
0: about this stuff all day long. I love the perspective that you bring and and simply how global and diverse it is. I said that before, and I'll say it again. Tiho, one of the things I want to get into next is you know, talking about risk and moving up the risk curve. One of the things you were talking about was the capital stack, getting as senior as you possibly can with other subordinated behind you. And This brings us to one of the topics I want to cover today, the capital stack, and specifically conversation around mezzanine debt in real estate projects. You mentioned it in our last recording, and it was one of the biggest, most talked about pieces on Twitter and other places since. And the thing that I've received the most questions about in terms of let's get a follow up to this. So would you mind indulging us in a bit of a deep dive in terms of what does a real estate mezzanine deal look like? How do you structure it?
1: And how does it make an interesting investment for those that are listening? Of course, Mike. Uh, well, it's great to see people interested in that. And uh, I'm going to discuss it the way I have done it before in my personal experience, and also what I've seen others do as well, which is also my personal experience. So if we just take a step back and we think about real estate, the way I think about it, at least, is there's three different real estate strategies. That's your core real estate, your value add, opportunistic. So for those that don't know, core real estate is very low risk, mainly focused on annual cash returns a leverage is very low it's the the key is keeping the occupancy rate high and this is kind of your buy and hold long term long term investment if you think about value add that is your basically a bit of risk a bit of reward kind of a play it's not really focused on cash flow but it, some portion of it can be you're already borrowing money you have some more leverage than normal more than 50% in most cases occupancy is not really the key here because you're trying to improve an asset, you're trying to add value to it. This is not a long-term buy and hold, this is kind of improving the asset and then after that you can either stabilize it and continue to get higher rents or you can actually sell it and exit it. And then you have opportunistic uh real estate and it's important to understand this. This is where cash flow is non-existent and it's all about the capital gain, I guess, or the you know, the ground up developments, the major rehabs, repositioning of the buildings non performing and distressed deals and so forth and here it's it's essentially this is where mezzanine debt is used so mezzanine debt will rarely be used in core real estate and sometimes or very very not very often in value add projects you could have some bridging loans we can discuss that another time but mezzanine debt it's a very common strategy in opportunistic real estate deals so one of the things that I would like to share before I start as well is look I, I'm a we are a global investment executor, so we are always looking at investments all around. So I'm not talking in particular from one country's perspective, like for example, from the US or from another country. And w- one caveat to add here as well is that in the, in the US, mezzanine debt isn't as popular as it is, let's say, in the UK or Australia, which are another two very developed real estate markets, but obviously far smaller than the United States. And the reason for that is that the real estate tax code is written in a way that entices investors, basically twist their hand to always look for exposure into equity, and that's connected, obviously, to ten thirty one exchange and depreciation and endless deferrals of, of taxation. But in other jurisdictions, that's not the case. So measuring debt exposure is probably one of the most versatile real estate strategies throughout the whole cycle. If you if you think about a real estate cycle you have four stages you have early stage you have mid cycle you have the late stage and you have the downturn and then it repeats again into the early cycle and mezzanine debt you can use it even though i you know i would say in the early stages you want to be in equity as much as possible basically we've just had a downturn hopefully valuations have fallen to the levels where they're very attractive there's a lot of distress out there and you want to be buying real estate in an equity exposure because that gives you unlimited or uncapped upside. But sometimes there'll be a distressed deal and the owner will say, look, well, I want to continue to have ownership, but I'm happy. I need a, a line of credit or I need a, a mezzanine debt loan, or I need something like that to get me through the distress period. And then you can come there and say, well, this is a distressed or a non-performing opportunity. And with mezzanine debt, you can earn a lot of money even at the early su- stage of the cycle. In mid-cycle, you probably continue with both strategies, equity and mezzanine debt. And by the late cycle, mid to late cycle, you're starting to look at protecting your capital as opposed to, you know, trying to have unlimited upside because you are understanding that it's been five or seven or nine years of a boom, and we are getting there now. Valuations are starting to look expensive, but there's still some uh, deals out there that are attractive, and you are happy to participate in those deals by earning a fixed return as opposed to unlimited upside. You know, in equity, people always say, I always want to be in equity because it has an unlimited upside potential. Well, just one thing I'd like to say is that I've never met anyone who made an unlimited amount of money. So in theory, that sounds very good. But when the downturn comes, you actually are the first to, to lose. You are the first under pressure. You're essentially the buffer or the protection that senior and mezz enjoy. So you're the, you're, you're the first in line to take the uh, hit. So choosing the right mezzanine debt opportunity can result in, in, in very good outcomes. I'm just going to name some before we actually jump into, into a specific deal and how we do it. From the deals that I've participated in, and this is sometimes strange for other investors, especially because interest rates are so low now, but mezzanine debt for us typically achieves at least a 15% return per annum, but we have participated in deals that are over 20%. And now, you know, sometimes American investors would say, and there's a reason why they would say this, because they have agency debt unlike any other country. And agency debt, for those that don't know, is that government is subsidizing loans. We don't have this in the UK or Australia or many other countries. And that creases the grooves of the overall debt cycle and, and the credit cycle. That helps a, a, a whole lot. So in other areas, for example, United out of of the United States, like UK or Australia, you're going to have, if there is a downturn in the credit cycle, and and the supply of capital is very difficult to to get your hands on, private capital will always demand far more compensation for the risk that they're taking. So, you know, 20% is not, it's not an easy deal to find, but I have seen a lot of them actually during 2020, during the uh, COVID meltdown. Moving along, I think with mezzanine debt, returns are far more certain. If you think about it, they are actually contractually fixed, and it's a fixed income. And also enforcement can be triggered on these as well. So there's a higher likelihood that you'll get paid, and we'll discuss that later. So equity-like returns, right? That's In other words, you're investing in debt and getting equity-like returns. But at the same time, you're still receiving bond-like downside protection. So that's that great hybrid and versatility of mezzanine debt, especially depending on which deal you choose. So in terms of valuation, mezzanine debt has a break-even outcome, even if the valuation declines by 25 or 30%. Obviously, this depends on your LTVs and LTCs, and we can discuss that later as well. But it's pretty cool to be making 15% per annum returns Let's say if you look at the world stock market index, ACWI, that's the all country world index. I think, I believe it's averaged over the last 30 years, something like 8%. So in mezzanine debt, you can get almost in in some cases, double that return. In other cases, almost triple that return. And if the valuations were to fall, if, if you have a crash in real estate of 20 to 30%, like we did during the great depression or during the uh, global financial crisis of 2008, you potentially could still break even, which is, you know, up for discussion, obviously, but that's a fantastic starting point. You're getting a hybrid of upside and downside, you know, in a likely event of a default as well. One has to remember that one holds a second lien over a tangible real asset. So that usually tends to result in minimal chance of losing a principal. And that's something that i you know, I'm happy to discuss with you and all the, all the things that mezzanine that has uh, on offer there. Tax advantages as well. Look, in the United States, you have 1031 exchange, but most of the countries around the world don't have that, unless unless you're just buying your primary residence or your house, your flat that you're going to live in. So for investment purposes, taxes are on real estate seen almost everywhere around the world. But if you're investing in interest, the taxation, the withholding tax on interest is going to be far lower than, let's say on capital gains or an active income like rental income and so forth and that goes for almost all the oecd countries something to remember so yes in the united states equity has tax advantages of 1031 exchange and depreciation but for the rest of the world let's say 7.7 billion people they prefer to get paid in interest i think when it comes to taxes over capital gains because technically, the rate should be lower. And that rate tends to be even more reduced if you're doing cross-border investing. So that's a perfect point to get into. Uh, mezzanine debt is also great for cross-border investing. If, if you're, For example, if you're investing for the first time, debt makes far more uh, sense and it's far more appealing relative to equity due to the security nature of it or the charge aspect of it. Would love to give you a few examples here. Recently, we had a talk with a Uruguayan family office who manage a lot of money in Chile and Argentina and Uruguay. And they typically invest into Germany and UK, United States, and they don't do it with equity. They do it with debt. Also, Latin American investors are not, they don't get the benefits of equity, tax advantages of equity, like in other countries. So for them, it's far more important to have a fixed rate of return and to have a charge over assets. Another example is, Last month, I had a talk with a Bondi family office. I mean, for those that don't know, Mike, you you should know this one very well. Bondi is a beautiful beach in the world located in Sydney. So it's a perfect place to set up your office overlooking Bondi. I think that's fantastic. But so, you know, they lend all over the East Coast of Australia into various real estate developments and projects and so forth. And now they're looking to expand in the UK. When I was talking to them last month, they were basically saying, well, if we're going to go to another country, and we've done this before, we've played around a little bit with the US and we played a little bit in Asia. Now we're also looking at the UK, we want to start with debt, we don't want to start with equity. And then Mike, you should know this one as well. This is a common one in Australia. But Hong Kong and Singapore family offices have been for years and years investing into Australian real estate as lenders, private lenders, either on a senior or mezzanine debt. And this is a massive one. So a huge amount of capital has come in. And look, with Hong Kong, there's no double tax treaty. So that's a bit of an iffy one. But with Singapore, it's fantastic. And that interest withholding tax I've discussed before will be, be probably halved. So if you think about Australian withholding taxes, it's 30% on dividends and 10% of interest. That's a great example as well. Moving along as well, a couple of others I think worth mentioning very quickly as well is uh, better alignment of interest for the LPs, as a project sponsor is usually subordinated. So, you know, you think about your enforcement and protection of principle and interest, that's very good. And, and finally, I think the fees are very attractive in mezzanine debt as opposed to equity. It isn't very attractive to syndicate mezzanine debt deals, unlike equity deals. So most real estate GPs, especially those who are fee driven, right, they tend to stay away from the space. And that's also in favor of LPs. That's some of the advantages of mezzanine debt. And I'm happy to do a deep dive into the world of mezzanine debt investing and discuss the due diligence process on a typical deal that we've done just recently, maybe a, a deal in the UK. So how do I think about a, a deal when, I, when I'm looking to invest? So from the due diligence process, the first thing I have to see, we don't want to invest into anything that's not inverted commas here, shovel ready. Okay, that means it's ready to be financed. And, you know, these are technical terms now in in real estate, but once you finance the deal and the raise is finished, you have mobilization period of three months or so, and then the construction starts. So it's an automatic thing. There's no waiting around for planning and permission or anything like that. We're not going to be investing into deals that have the potential, forget that. We're investing in deals that the, the spade goes into the ground the moment we sign the contract and our capital is performing and working. So... Due diligence process, I think this is very important. I've done this a whole lot of times, and this is a very, very interesting part for me. I really enjoy this. So I can break it down into several aspects that I think are important. First of all, I tend to start with the project itself. So what is the theme? What is the purpose of the project? Does it make sense? What is the planning and permission? Uh, and, And is it in place? It hasn't been approved. And what was approved? And what are the council notes or the barrow notes or the city count, you know, notes. So moving along, I also want to investigate the location. I'm looking at the project side. I'm looking at the macro, the micro location. I'm looking at the infrastructure, the transportation. These days after COVID, you're also looking at other things as well. You're looking at whether there are parks around the place or rivers where people can keep their sanity, which is very, very important. Moving along after that, we are looking at the borrower. This is usually your developer, your sponsor, your GP, whatever you want to call them. The key thing for us is their track record, their reputation. How many years have they been in business? When I say track record as well, and we want to be working with people who have been around for more than one cycle. In other words, they've seen a massive downturn. But if we think about it today, it's 2021. I ask people, well, did you develop during 2008? And how did you go? You know, that's now that's almost 13 years ago. And if they've been around for at least one cycle, that means they were in during the boom from 2002 probably to 2007 and the boom now from 2010, 11 or whatever you want where the real estate bottom until today. So that that's a long time developing. And obviously the skill set, the team, the talent, it's all going to be there. And you know, then the, some of my favorite part, if you're a bit nerdy and you like your numbers as I do, I, I got a. Uh, degree in accounting. So I like my numbers. It's the feasibility study. You're looking at your financials, your business plan, your project metrics. You're looking at things like, you know, sensitivity analysis, which maybe most people don't know what it is. But essentially, uh, two things that impact developments is your time or duration, as well as your exit price evaluation. So if you sell your dwellings at 5% higher or 5% lower, that's going to impact the end result. But if you sell it at the target price, but then it takes six months longer or, or you six months earlier, that'll also impact the exit price. So feasibility study is very, very important. Then the overall construction ex- aspect, the due diligence of that. We're looking at the general contractor, the quantity surveyor. We're making sure there is a GMP in place or JCT is what it's called in the UK. And essentially those terminologies just means a fixed contract or a maximum price You know, a maximum price contract in construction. So you're basically locking in the maximum that you want to pay, and it'll be basically between 90 to 99% fixed. Moving along, we also want to do due diligence on security. So, first of all, you're looking at your LTVs, LTCs, you're looking at your senior lender. If you're in a mezzanine position, you're looking at who the senior lender is and what they have done. A lot of people get all caught up in due diligence, Mike. One thing I have to say to you is let's say we're, Recently, we were looking at a deal in the UK, and the overall deal is 54 million pounds. And the senior lender did a 30, I believe it was a 37 million pound construction deal. That's a senior senior position. And the mes was just going to be 4.2 million pounds. So yes, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for us. That's a lot of money for anyone. But you don't want to get caught up in a small minuscule loan that you're doing when somebody, let's call them smart money or sophisticated money, They've done a massive due diligence process way before you, doing every single angle of it and demanding a huge amount of transparency because they're lending 37 million pounds.
0: And this is a private senior debt lender. This is not a bank. This is a, a family institution of some kind.
1: We, it's, more, it's more like a group of families that would invest into a fund. And then this is a company, a, a first tier senior lender. Got it. I'd rather not say any names, but they're a top five in the UK and they typically do construction loans all over the place if it meets their criteria. Yeah. Uh, so they are doing a £37 million loan and then several families, it was us, it was a an investor out of Switzerland, a family office out of Switzerland, and it was also a family office out of Puerto Rico. And three of us were looking to do million, but my point is, if a senior lender is doing 37 million, talk to them, (laughs) ask them about the due diligence because they're putting far more money than you are, and they've done it all, and they have, you know, they have signed the contract, the heads of terms. Another important thing in security, and this is what most people maybe don't know if they're new to mezzanine debt, but that's the intercreditor deed. I cannot say that any slower. Basically, what it does is it makes sure there is an alignment of interest between, and there is a legal uh, precedent there between senior and mes debt. So if the deal goes into default, and we can talk about that later, you're not going to be forgotten, and senior debt is not going to demand only their own money while you're left behind, right? So there's an intercreditor deed making sure that there is a connect, communication, and, and legal precedent between senior and mes debt. Contract covenants. SPV structuring, you know, look at your terms of enforcement, contract milestones, personal guarantees, the security part of due diligence goes on and on. And then finally, which is the most important, that's the exit strategies. And I'm not going to say exit strategy. I've said exit strategies. We don't do developments with, we don't, we don't do deals with any developer that doesn't have more than one exit strategy. If your exit strategy is only, I'm going to build it and sell it, or I'm going to build it and rent it, that's not good enough for us sales and marketing plans, bulk sales via discounts and proven, you know, hard evidence of that happening before. And one of our favorites as well is, especially in the UK, developer exit finance. So basically, once you, and we we can discuss this, I'm sure you have some questions, but once you complete a PC that's known as practical completion, what will end up happening is that that site now gets turned into a tangible asset, and there might be titles for all of those dwellings, houses, or units, and whatnot. And each of those can now be refinanced at a, with a bridging loan at 60 to 70% LTV. And that capital is going to have far lower cost or far lower interest than the construction loans of Senior and MES that are blended. We call that a blended construction loan and it makes sense for a developer to do that because they're reducing their cost of holding those assets while they while they sell them down and that essentially buys us out that's our exit strategy so in a recent deal that we were looking at in London in in North Barrow of um, New Barnet we had to there was the scheme was 137 units and they were all one bedroom and two bedroom essentially out of 137 units what was needed for senior and men's to exit, both at principal and interest, that's called a gross exit. So for us to have a gross exit, we needed 43 units sold out of 137, which is 29% of the building. So you sell 29% of the building, and then you refinance the rest, and we're out. And we, we made 20.8% return per annum, if that happens.
0: And to me, this is you know the critical piece. In that, and I was going to ask about duration, but you've touched on it beautifully, you're not sticking around to see through the success of the development. And you're not sticking around to even see the development necessarily completed and sold out. You're, as a mezzanine finance uh, provider, you're being paid out before the senior debt is being paid out and before the developer has had a return on
1: their equity as well. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. So yes, you do have to wait for the completion. You know, It's called a PC in, in construction world. Practical completion essentially means the building is finished or the or the project is finished, and that's when you can have the handover of units and the handover of the of the cash that the customer is paying. So we are sticking around for that. So if you think about a typical deal that we're in, once we invest, there's three months mobilization, then there will be anywhere between sixteen to twenty months of construction. Let's say it's only it's usually eighteen, so that's twenty one. By twenty one, you have PC practical completion is reached. At that point in time, you have an exchange of anyone that's put down or reserved units or anyone that wants to buy them, that's when you're having the exchange. If we sell 25 or 29 in this case, 29% of the building and these units, 29% of them are sold, the developer will essentially refinance the rest and we're out. It's an alignment of interest that's very healthy for us and the developer. Developer will reduce his cost uh, of finance which is eating into his profits, and that's good for him. And guess what? What's good for him is good for us. Now, if we're part of equity, the, the way that some of the deals are structured, or a lot of the deals in the United States, as example, are structured and I'm talking about, once again, from a te- tax perspective, people love to be in equity. But it's actually not a very good deal for you as an LP. I'm just being honest. You want to have priority over the developer. Just as you said, Mike, you don't have to stick around and see him sell that one one last unit. You know that corner unit that nobody can sell? The hardest one that's a one-bedroom and it's looking directly into some tree and and it's on third floor (laughs) and nobody wants it? That's the one that he needs to sell to do the whole thing and uh, finish the whole project, but we don't have to be there. We can exit with, in some cases, like 29% of the building sold. So it really depends where you are at the uh, at the LTV. But by the way, once you have invested and done the due diligence process, that's not the end of it. There is a whole another can of worms to open up, which is called monitoring process. Uh, and I'll go through the monitoring process as well. So look, what what is monitoring process? The way I think about it off the top of my head, it's first of all, weekly and fortnightly communication, right? We're getting pictures, we're getting videos, progress updates and so forth. If you are very experienced, you're going to be doing frequent site visits. Before COVID, I was in London very often and I love to go on sites, not to stick around people and and, and pop my head around the shoulder and annoy them, but actually to help them if we can help them in any way or to mitigate risk or create solutions to upcoming problems that are up and coming that we can see that are happening and there are delays. But if you're not very experienced, then third party monitoring is very possible. Essentially, you can get real estate experts who will go there on a weekly or a monthly basis, and they will be doing the monitoring and the updating for you. You know, tracking of guard charts, so planned versus actual for three phases of the actual project. So there's the pre-construction phase, there is the construction phase, and then there's the sales phase. So I think that's also important. And then finally, you're going to get your monthly updates, you know, construction status updates. And in this order, first, there'll be demolition and the soft strip you know, it's softly stripping the building and maybe you're keeping the bones of it. Then there's going to be the groundworks, you know, the foundational works, then there's going to be framing or if the buildings are very tall, there's going to be a super frame. Then the next milestone is show flat. Show flat essentially is once that first flat is finished, the sales are going to be f- going far, far faster. In places like Australia, show flats are finished even before construction starts, which is unlike the UK, just to put this there, out there. So in Australia, you need to get a certain amount of pre-sales that occur before senior or MEZ will even come in. And that de-risks the project, not, yes, for the developer, but in particular for senior and the MEZ, which is fantastic. In the UK, they don't have that kind of, a let's say, Asian influence or tradition where they do pre-sales off the plan. And what ends up happening is you are funding before any pre-sales. Now, there's going to be some pre-sales along the way that, you know, during soft sale period. But when that show flat is finished, that's very, very important because that's when typically in the UK, traditionally, when people can walk it, feel it, see it, smell it, touch it, that's when they will buy it. And that's your big uh, milestone there. So show flat. And then you, the final milestone is practical completion. And that's the handover and of all the units. You want to be also tracking on monthly updates, your finance status, your facility drawdown. That is basically when senior does a big loan, it's not all given in one go like mezzanine debt usually is. It's drawn down on a monthly or a quarterly basis, depending on the contract. So you want to be tracking the cash flow projections and the accumulated interest. And you want to be seeing if there's any delays or if the, if, the, if there's a, a lack of capital, the drawdown hasn't been going as fast as possible and so forth. You want to be tracking all those things. Budget status, construction budget versus actuals, quantity surveyor reports. In particular, senior debt will have what's known as bank QS, bank's quantity surveyor, and you want to be reading their reports. If you can't, you better make friends with them because if you're measuring debt, you want to be reading senior debts, quantity surveyor reports as well. Uh, They're going to have all the ins and outs of what's going on on a daily or even weekly basis. And then sales status makes sense, right? Pre-sales, deposits taken, negotiations of bulk sales. We don't want to work with developers who are not interested to reduce their price if they need to in case of a downturn, you see. Because that, that doesn't help the developer. If they're going to do a bulk sale, they give a discount. So what's the purpose? that The purpose is for us to exit, not for them to get a higher rates of return. And most developers won't do that, but we work with the ones that are open to that. Because essentially what they do is they might make less money, but they will pay everybody on time and they will maintain their reputation and track record. And what that's what we call a clean track record without any defaults. There are plenty of developers out there who have done 12 or 13 projects and defaulted on three and have been successful on 10. Those three that they defaulted on, they didn't want to do what we would like them to do. And that's what they had a default. And then everybody got into trouble, you know, and obviously you're much more protected on mezzanine debt or senior debt, but we won't usually work with those developers And, and so on and so forth. So that's your monitoring, so I'm sure you have a, a, a meaningful amount of questions now. <laughs> <laughs> I do.
0: And, and, you know, it's just incredible listening to you. This is clearly a language that you are more than fluent in. I have one main follow-up. You were mentioning earlier in the conversation about Mes being a fixed return. It is an annualized return though, isn't it? It's not fixed for the estimated project timeline of 21 months or 24 months, but the rate that you're achieving is per year during that time. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Uh, Just to come back all the way to the start, opportunistic real estate strategies do not have cash flow. So, this is what you call pick, pay in kind. In the US, that's what they call it. In in the UK, they call it rolled up interest. In some other places, they call it something else. But I say, or balloon interest in Australia, I believe we call it. But that means that, yes, you're getting an annualized return. Sometimes it can be a flat interest, sometimes it can be a compounding interest. Hint, hint. This is what you negotiate. You can do whatever you want there and it depends on what the other party will accept. But usually you're paid at the exit. So you'll be returning your, your principal and interest will be returned in one go. Or not in one go, but it can be done in portions as sales happen. But essentially there'll be a block there of months where you are exiting near the end part after practical completion.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned also earlier the benefit of,
1: Investing in
0: interest returns or investing via debt cross border, and I want to get into that because you know the second most requested follow up discussion to have with you, Tiho, was around your international man of mystery status and, and your experience living in a lot of different jurisdictions around the world. But more uh, specifically, around citizenship by investment, second passports, you know, global taxation planning residency programs, various incentives. And of course, you know, tying that back to this Mez discussion, where in the world are you best placed to invest in the type of deal that you've just talked about in a, a jurisdiction like London? Is there advantages under double taxation agreements and other things in a cross-border environment that investors should be thinking about?
1: well yeah now we're we're going to be getting a little bit personal but if you think about it if i'm investing in london and i'm sitting in malta you've kind of figured that answer out doesn't you don't need to be extremely intelligent to uh, connect those two dots but i've lived in hong kong before we still have an office there and i also live in malta now and look i like the climate here but it's also i'm in the mediterranean which i'm originally was born in croatia so that is kind of close to home but it has those opportunities, as you said. And Malta, just like Cyprus, just like where you are, Mike, which is Singapore, where I lived before, which is Hong Kong, or where we're from, Australia. These are all ex-British colonies, and they have very good tax treaties with the UK. You know, and for so so. Look, if you're thinking about it, let's let's take a step back and think about how, how to answer that question. So, there is your your residence planning uh, perspective. So the key question with residence planning is what task? What's the task at hand? Or what's the purpose that we're trying to accomplish here? What, what is your end result? So some people are looking at new residences because of tax planning, which is what you just mentioned. There could be tax havens and so forth. Some are looking to increase mobility, and you know the, the famous one is, for example, the, the Portuguese Golden Visa that a lot of the Chinese and and other and other um, high net worth investors out of North America as well did which gives you a Schengen permit, and you can basically just spend a couple of days in Portugal a year, that's enough, and then you can travel the whole Europe without worrying how long you stay in each country. And others do it for diversification perspective, which is your flag theory kind of internalization. The way that you diversify your portfolio, you can also diversify your life. You're looking at getting, for example, if I was living in the U.S., the healthcare there is not very good and neither is education. I think they're rank, rank in the bottom 50th percentile for both of those. So I would essentially be maybe sending my kids or doing or looking at healthcare if I was living in the United States elsewhere. Maybe Canada is a better option. And if, and for people who have both a Canadian and American passport or a Canadian residence with an American passport, that is a far easier execution to do. You're also looking at family protection, asset protection, wealth protection, banking, I know some people get Singapore residents just so they can use Singapore banking, as Singapore banks continue, in some cases, to close to foreigners, uh, and they have world, world-class world banking. So that's the way that I would really look at residence planning.
0: Yeah, I've certainly uh, spoken to a few people here in Asia that have a very specific plan to educate their children Uh, in different parts of the world. Oftentimes, that that means boarding school in the UK or parts of Europe. Many are in the UK and Switzerland. And then often a tertiary education plan into the colleges in the US and and things like that, if they're on an academic path. But one of the things that a lot of wealthy families do here is attempt to attain a second passport in a European country simply for uh, redundancy or or, uh, a backup plan, essentially, as you say, flag theory. Now, the Singapore government doesn't allow it, doesn't allow dual citizenship, whereas other countries do. And there's other nuances. You know, I know that the US, for instance, if you hold a US passport, you're taxed on worldwide income, regardless of where you live. Australia, the passport that I hold, very similar taxes worldwide income, but not if you're a non-resident. right? So if you're living in Australia, you're taxed as an Australian. But if you're a non-resident like I am, and I'm living in Singapore, well, I pay taxes in Singapore, despite holding an Australian passport. And so- I'm free to collect a European passport or a Malta passport or or something else. And that might actually help my children with their education path if they wanted to go and study in the UK later on or somewhere in Europe. Are are you seeing that with other families or other people that you're interacting with? How many people that you're aware of holding second passports and have actively planned a strategy, whether it be residence or passport or or specific flag theory?
1: Well, I, I'm in certain circles that are like-minded. So the answer is just absolutely everybody. And there might be maybe shocking. I even have a lot of American friends who have Caribbean passports, uh, second passports. They own villas down there in places like, well, some islands, let's say. They're quite known. We can get into them. So yeah, just about everybody, Mike. To come back to what you stated about taxation, I just would like to add some caveats to that. So that we have an OECD tax model which is essentially the international taxation system. And it's divided into four different segments of how income is taxed. And I'm happy to share that. So first one is the no income tax. And typically people will know jurisdictions. These are very rare jurisdictions, but you know, the ones that stand out, Monaco and United Arab Emirates and Cayman Islands and Bahamas and so forth and et cetera. So there's a few of them around the place, but they are not very common. The second one that's very interesting is territorial tax system. And territorial tax means basically you pay, you pay the income that's sourced in the territory and anything that's sourced outside of the territory is not taxed where you live, but could be taxed elsewhere. These countries are Panama and Uruguay and Latin America. Uh, from top of my head, I think where you live, Singapore has it, Hong Kong, Taiwan. I mean, the whole Southeast Asia, really, Taiwan, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, in Central Europe, you have Georgia, I remember as well, and also you have Costa Rica, if I recall correctly as well, near Caribbean. A couple of Caribbean islands do this as well. I believe Anguilla is one of them. But there's also territorial tax in certain countries just for foreigners. For example, Malta, people think that's a tax haven. Well, not really. <laughs> 95 or 90% of the people who live on this island don't have any tax benefits and pay the high, well, some of the highest taxes in the world. So for locals, citizenship holders of Malta, they don't get any benefits. So here in Malta, you have what's called a non-domiciled rule, which I'm not going to get into too much here, but Malta has copied that from the UK. So UK has a territorial tax system for foreigners. So does Malta, as an example. So does Spain. It's actually called the David Beckham Law. Most people don't probably know it, but it lasts for six years and it was created because of Beckham. He didn't, he didn't want to move to play football, or as they call it in America, soccer, in Real Madrid, so then they created a special program so footballers like him can be attracted. They pay taxes in Spain on the the income that arises in Spain as a tax liability in Spain, but any other foreign sourced income, as long as it's not remitted to Spain, will not be taxed in Spain. Obviously, David Beckham had a lot of interest all around the world as an ultra high net worth individual, and he didn't want to be paying very high Spanish tax rates. And Spain, with, with those kind of tax laws and tax rates, is not going to be attracting a lot of you know, well-to-do people. So they had to do something about it. Israel is another famous one. I have a lot of Jewish friends and investors. And they, if you move back to Israel, you have a 10-year tax holiday, depending on how it's structured. So that's your territorial tax and ter- territorial tax for, only for foreigners. Most people don't also know that it, Japan has this. If you're a foreigner in Japan, you're going to be taxed only on your locally sourced income. Same with China, same with Vietnam, both countries that I've spent a lot of time in. Vietnam I lived in. Philippines as well is a famous one. And then we move to what you were talking about, holding an Australian passport like I do. That's called residence-based taxation. So 90% of the countries around the world do this, like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, France, Germany, Spain, et cetera, et cetera. And... That essentially means that wherever you're living, you will probably be paying worldwide income tax. So if you're living in Spain and you are doing all kinds of things around the world and in Spain, you will pay taxes to Spain for all of it, potentially also to other countries. And hopefully there's a double tax treaty in place to make sure that you're not double taxed, right? And then finally, you have the fourth bucket. And and there's only four countries actually to do this, but that's called citizenship-based taxation. Believe it or not, United States is one of them, Hungary is another, Myanmar is one, and there's a small little country in Africa called, I believe, Eritrea. That, well, I'm not so sure if that's important because I'm not sure how many wealthy people there are there. So if they move abroad and they start to do well for themselves, I highly doubt that Eritrea will have the capacity to chase them. But the United States does. They have FATCA, they have FBA. President Obama implemented all this after the GFC. So US citizens attract all around the world. And it's very difficult actually to onboard them into hedge funds outside of the United States. It's difficult to onboard them into SPVs. For example, my bank, bank that I bank with in around the world is Citi Citibank, which is an American bank. But ironically, they won't uh, let US citizens have bank accounts outside of US in any jurisdiction. Or if they do, you're going to have to be a very big fish. We're talking about like maybe tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars deposited just sitting with the bank. So that's a little bit about the OECD tax model. But coming back to the citizenship taxation planning, yes, I mean, look, dual citizenship is very, very interesting, as you mentioned, and you have to to know which countries have restrictions and which don't. Citizenship by investment programs, for me, really fall into two buckets there is the official and unofficial programs. And when I say unofficial, Mike, I don't mean, uh, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's illegal. It's just not streamlined or advertised. But yes, one must consider dual citizenship laws before starting any of this. And dual citizenship laws, well, you know, there's a very big restrictions in Asia as well as certain parts of Africa and Europe. Some countries have restrictions without any exception, and that's your Indias, Chinas, Japan, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, Iran, and so forth. But you'll you'll still notice a lot of affluent families from Iran, from China, they they do carry more than one passport. And in China, they have this restriction without any exception. And yet, you know, Henley and Partners and all these big firms around the world, Archon Capital, they all come in. Advertise dual citizenship in these countries, because affluent Chinese or even Indians who are not allowed to have that still want to have it. And, and then you have other countries that have restrictions as well, but there is exceptions, and that depends on your birth or your family or your parents or your marriage or something like that. A few good examples could be Germany, which doesn't allow dual citizenship unless you are married. let's say you're married I, I know a family that I used to manage their money in Germany. And the gentleman is German, the wife is Australian. And so the kids can have dual citizenship, you see, that's very interesting. South Korea is a, is a famous one in Asia, and so is Philippines. But you also have like, for example, South Africa, and you have Norway, which can have dual citizenship with exceptions. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic. I, I love talking about it. And you know, I also, I'm happy to have a bit of transparency. I have several passports as well. So I, I'm able to travel to just about any country that you're allowed to travel to visa-free. This is obviously before COVID. Now the world is a bit closed, including Russia and China and Cuba and yeah, except North Korea. I can't go there. I don't think anybody can.
0: (laughs) Still working on that one, eh? Tio, this has been a wonderful chat. I, I wish we had time to ask you lots more questions, but I'm sure there'll be even time for a third conversation that we'll have in the future. So uh, I'll spring this on you because we always ask the final question to all guests and I've asked you before. So maybe a slight modification today on the final question. We always talk about, imagine you're writing a letter to your children. What's one lesson or idea you don't think others would mention, but you think is important to understand. I wonder if we modify that and consider one investing lesson or one investing idea that you would Write in a letter to your children that you think is important to understand.
1: Well, look, we've talked today about mezzanine debt investments, and let's keep it in that context because it might help some people. So if I'm actually writing some information here for the sake of how my kids might be doing mezzanine investments in the future, tips for successful mezzanine debt investments or or ideas, look, stick around. There's going to be a few of these ideas, and I'm going to put them together, Mike, Stick around very experienced people who have been around for a long time, who have survived the cycles, you know, who haven't made mistakes. So no defaults, who have skin in the game or hurt money, a meaningful amount in the deal because they're going to speak with their, they're going to put their money where their mouth is, as we say in Australia. Stick with a talented group of people who have a low personnel turnover because that speaks a lot. You know, if you're not paying your people, well, they're going to leave. If you're not looking after them, well, if there's problems in the company, that, that all gives you hints. And, and ask around and see what their reputation is. That's how I would say that. And you know, any kind of experienced people, including like quantity surveyors on the outside, general contractors, you know, make sure that they have ample cash and bank and liquidity, cash of bank and liquidity. Make sure their staff, once again, doesn't have, they're paying their tradies on time. They have a strong balance sheet, and negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Everything is negotiable in 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 the world of finance and in the world in general. I mean, I've traveled on a motorbike throughout the whole Cambodia, and I negotiated everything. So now, when I'm negotiating mezzanine debt deals in London, which are multi-million dollar deals, I use the same tactics as I did in Cambodia in a jungle. You know, negotiate your terms of enforcement, your project milestones, your interest rates, if the deal goes into a default, which we didn't even talk about, we didn't have enough time, what happens when mezzanine debt goes into default, but negotiate new interest rates in a default, which will, you know, go up and th- there will be your incentive. That's basically pressuring the sponsor or the GP negotiate the duration of the loan, the profit share, the preferred returns, negotiate everything. Uh, and change the structure of of the contract. Have your lawyers do that. So like I said, stick around with experienced people and also negotiate things in alternative investments. That's very possible. And uh, that's what gives you the edge, the upper hand.
0: Tiho, it's an absolute privilege to learn from you every time we speak. Thank you again for so generously sharing all that you have today. It's been a blast. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Mike. To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the Business of Family.